it comes to financial advice, you got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever was in my wallet, but I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet, finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. If you're listening to Investing for Beginners, then you probably care about money and learning how to make a good relationship with your finances. Everyone's Talking Money is hosted by money wellness expert and certified financial planner, Shauna Game. Everyone's Talking Money focuses on relevant, inclusive, and forward-thinking conversations around money. Hear about the money topics you need to know, such as ways to train your brain to reach money goals, why you should ditch your budget and start tracking your cash, and everything you need to know about paying off student loans. Simple steps to start investing as a side hustle, ways to invest in rental real estate, how to overcome money trauma, and so much more. With over 900 episodes, there's a show for any and every money question you have. I'm a big fan of Shauna's as well. She has a relatable style and soothing voice that takes some of the stress surrounding money. Shauna really speaks to the listener and never ends in an episode without actionable tips. I recently listened to the episode, Stop Stressing Over Your Money, a simple budgeting solution, where she talks about her simple, easy one, two, three system for budgeting. It helped me a lot. Are you ready to learn everything about money that no one has taught you? Do yourself a favor and subscribe to Everyone's Talking Money podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I love this podcast because it crushes your dreams of getting rich quick. They actually got me into reading stats for anything. You're tuned in to the Investing for Beginners podcast. Led by Andrew Sather and Dave Ahern. Step-by-step premium investing guidance for beginners. Your path to financial freedom starts now. Starts now. All right, folks, welcome to Investing for Beginners podcast. Today, we have a very special guest with us. Today, we have Karen Feinerman, who co-founded New York-based hedge fund Metropolitan Capital Advisors in 1992 and serves as a CEO. She's been a panelist on CNBC's Fast Money from its debut year in 2007 until the present. She is also the author of the New York Times bestselling book, Feinerman's Rules. Feinerman. Feinerman's Rules, Secrets I'd Only Tell My Daughters About Business and Life, and recently bought a stake in the WNBA. Karen also is launching a new podcast, How She Does It. So Karen, thank you very much for joining us today. And I'm sorry I butchered your name, and I promise I will get it right again. That's um, okay. I've been called worse than Feinerman. <laughs> That's okay. Great uh, to be here. Thanks I'm, for having me. Yeah, you're welcome. So I guess maybe to start, let's start with an easy one. So how did you get interested in investing and what did you want to be when you grew up? So started really young, actually. What, first, what I wanted to be was a gymnast, but I had absolutely no talent whatsoever. So that was quickly discarded. But really, it was my mother who sort of encouraged, I'm one of five kids, four girls and a boy, and she really encouraged particularly the girls to make their own money, that it was really important to be financially independent. And I saw she was in this very traditional marriage, and my dad made the money. And so they both sort of believed that he had the power. And that was sort of a paradigm I didn't want for myself. And I thought it would be fun to have money. So I was very interested in a, um, there was a guy named Ivan Boeski, which was how I thought you pronounced his name, because I'd never heard anyone pronounce it. He's, if you don't know who he is, he is a notorious insider trader. But before he was an insider trader, he used to trade on takeover deals. And it seemed really interesting to me. So that field is called risk arbitrage. And I thought that was fascinating. And so I wanted to be a risk arbitrageur when I was 16. And then when I was applying to college, I told my parents, I'm only applying to Wharton, which is a business program at the University of Pennsylvania. And if I don't get in, I'm not going to college. 
which obviously is a very dumb plan, but thankfully they took me. And uh, at that time, it was just straight to Wall Street. You could just go straight to Wall Street, which I did and was a risk arbitrager. And I really found it fascinating and interesting. And also, I wanted to make money. That was important to me. That's awesome. So I guess for those that aren't familiar with what a risk arbitrageur is, not easy for me to say, uh, could you kind of explain kind of maybe what that is to people that aren't familiar with that term? Sure. So it is investing based on takeover deals. So one that has been in the news for months, Microsoft is looking to acquire Activision and they're going to pay $95 a share in cash or maybe it's 96. But there's some big takeover. There's some big antitrust risk. So the government is suing to try to block the deal. And so the deal is trading well below 96. And so you kind of have to assess the risk reward. If the deal goes through, you'll make a lot of money. But if the deal breaks, how far is Activision going down? How much will I lose? So it's not so much related to what the market does. It sort of takes away market risk overall and exchanges it for sort of a idiosyncratic, a very specific risk to the deal itself. And and they're exciting. And sometimes you get into a, you see a hostile bidding war where, you know, different buyers keep raising the price. That's always fun that that works out. But that business has changed a lot. So I, I don't do that anymore. I've had to morph a few times. Um, but that was really my, my start. So Karen, that's a really cool start. Can we take you back to that time were there lessons that you learned? And it doesn't have to be about stocks or investing, but just lessons that experience taught you that you were able to use for the rest of your career. Yes, there's one very expensive lesson that I will never forget. I hope it's the worst trade I ever do. It's certainly the worst trade up until now that I've ever done. And that was, without getting to in the weeds, there was an option trade that I put on. United Airlines was getting taken over by a group of financial buyers. It's called an LBO. And so the stock was trading close to the $300 a share that the deal was structured as $300 a share in cash. Stock was about 280 something. So I put on this complicated put spread. Doesn't matter what the specifics are. So we paid about two and a half bucks for it. The deal broke. I had to pay $80 to get out of the trade, which is, you know, of course, a horrendous, horrendous return on investment. And it was really, for me, the idea of, wow, really think about your downside and don't exclude the sort of black swan possibility. And it wasn't even that black swan-y. It was credit markets can change, and they do. And they changed dramatically right then. And so that trade of really not thinking through what can go wrong and how much risk could I stand to take and what's the worst case scenario, even if it's small, you really got to think about it. You can't dismiss it. doesn't mean never move forward. You don't want to talk yourself into, you know, never doing anything, but at least weigh it in there. And that, that was just an enormous, enormous mistake. And, and it's so painful to lose that much money and feel really dumb. And you're like, well, you know, it's, it's so disheartening and it was terrible, but I always remember it. And I hope to never make a mistake that bad ever again. Do you know if there's ways you kind of overcame that feeling? You know, we are coming off a pretty tough year in the market for some people. So we all make mistakes. Is there a way to move past those and not take it too personally and use it as an opportunity? That's a really good question. I think that there's sort of a few different buckets. There's the stupid bucket that that trade was in. So I try to avoid that. And then there's sort of the the market. If you're in the market, just because if the market goes down and your stocks go down, that doesn't mean you're necessarily doing anything wrong. Are the fundamental parts of the thesis that you had, are they still intact, right? And so, you know, in 2022, when the Fed started hiking, anything that had a really high price to earnings multiple was going down, even if the fundamental story was staying the same. And so I try to differentiate between, is this specific to my investment 
or is it more broad? And I have a lot more patience with a market that's down. And I really try to remember your gut is a terrible indicator. You know, we feel comfortable buying stocks when they're high and everyone's making money. We feel more comfortable jumping in. But that kind of, you step back, that doesn't really make so much sense. It's when nobody wants to buy a stock that the risk reward is actually more favorable. It's very hard to step in and do that. But I've been through a few really terrible markets, enough to know a little bit, well, in March of 2020, if you had a company that had a good balance sheet but was trading down 60%, maybe you buy some. Maybe you step in and you can buy things at a decent price. And it's terrifying. feels so much better to buy them when they're super high, at their all-time high, which, of course, is not as good a risk-reward. Your gut is not an indicator. It's a terrible if, if, indicator. If we <laughs> haven't had a quotable tweet right there, that's right. the right one to come away with. Uh, yeah, your gut is really, no, it's definitely not an indicator. So I try to remember that, even though it's really hard. Mm. Let's be honest here. Your sex life is important. It helps us feel more confident and boosts our happiness. But sometimes we struggle to perform. Our life gets in the way. This is where hymns can help. With their convenient and discreet online platform, you can get help for your erectile dysfunction from the comfort and privacy of your own home. No more waiting rooms, no more awkward conversations, just a simple, direct path to treatment that works around your life, not interrupts it. Invest in your health today. Hims is changing men's health care by providing access to affordable sexual health treatments from the comfort of your couch. Hims provides access to doctor-trusted ED treatment options such as chewable hard mints, brand-name treatments like Viagra, or generic alternatives for up to 95% cheaper. The process is simple and 100% online. No uncomfortable doctor visits. Answer a series of questions on their site and a medical provider will determine the right treatment option. If prescribed, your medication ships to you free. No insurance is needed. If ED is getting you down, it's time you join the hundreds of thousands of trusted HIMSS subscribers and get treated. Start your free online visit today at hymns.com slash investing. That's H-I-M-S dot com slash investing for your personalized ED treatment options. Hymns.com slash investing. Hard mints are chewable compounded products which are not approved by or verified for safety and effectiveness by the FDA. Prescriptions require an online consultation with a healthcare provider who will determine if appropriate. Restrictions apply. See website for details and important safety information. Subscription required. Price varies based on product and subscription plan. When it comes to financial advice, you got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever was in my wallet, but I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet, finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. Yeah, it really is. So, you know, it's interesting you've talked about, you know, having experienced a wide range of different markets and and conditions and whatnot. There's a generation of investors now that have not experienced that. And so... I think that's what was so, I guess, shocking to a lot of people, you know, particularly last year. That what do you mean markets don't go up to the right all the time? Right. No, it doesn't. It really doesn't. And interest rates aren't always zero. Mm-mm. Yes. Though I mean, we're you know, people are like, oh my God, the Fed's raising so much. My parents had a mortgage higher than this. Right. And we we just think, oh, my God, this has gone crazy. No, this is the average price over the last 50 years of money. Mm-hmm. You know, whatever it is now, give or take a little bit. Right. Yeah. My parents, uh, my dad was really big in commercial real estate in the 70s and 80s. And, uh-huh. you know, when the market, you know, when the rates turned and, you know, uh, Greenspan, I think it was a Greenspan or Volcker. It was Volcker. It was Volcker yeah. Yeah. was trying to crush uh, inflation. And raise the rates to 18, 19, 20%. 
yeah, it destroyed my dad's business. And he, he couldn't stay in the room when that he would come on TV. He would have to leave the room. He would get so upset uh-huh. uh, because of, of what happened. But yeah, I worked at Wells Fargo as a banker for a short period. And there was a gentleman who had, a, had inherited an, an IRA, a CD from his parents. And it was a 19%. CD. And, and this uh-huh. was in 2008 or nine. No, uh-huh. it was 2012. I'm sorry. And he came in to renew the rate, you know, and he's like, he didn't follow it. And so when I told him what the bank was offering, which was I don't know, half a percent, if uh-huh. that, you know, and he's just like, what? <laughs> yeah, no, sorry. I'm sorry, sir. That doesn't exist anymore. Yeah. That's like, yeah, that's another era, but we, who knows we could get back. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So you talked about morphing into kind of different ways that you invest. Maybe could you kind of talk through that a little bit? Be interested to hear kind of how you, you know, as your experience with the markets is, as you know, give you new perspectives, how you invest would be interesting to hear that, how that's changed. So I was doing RiskArb at DLJ, which was a big firm in the 80s that was acquired. And it was a terrible time to do risk arbitrage. The credit markets were broken and no deals could get done. And they would say, you could have been the best risk arbitrager in the world and you were not going to make money. There was nothing to do. But my old partner said, why don't we start a hedge fund? This is in 1992. It was very, very young in the hedge fund, you know, uh, history. And so we did. There were tons of opportunities. The, the, the Gulf War had really thrown markets for off their, you know, just markets were down a lot. And the credit markets, as I said, were in disarray. And there was a banking crisis. So that sounds like a terrible time. In fact, it is a spectacular time. You could have been the worst hedge fund manager in 1992, and you were going to make money. As long as you invested in something, you were going to make money. And so it just sort of made me think, all right, well, you have to, there's sort of a big picture you have to be aware of. But then I also realized, all right, risk arbitrage is not something, it's not only were there no deals, but it was also getting incredibly efficient as more and more money came in. So I wanted to say, all right, we were looking at things. Where were things really out of favor? And savings and loans were just hated, even though we went to visit tons of them in the Midwest, and they had maybe one or two non-performing mortgages. I mean, these were in excellent shape, and the market didn't care. But ultimately, that changed. And so, so that was a big lesson of, you know, going where things are really out of favor, but also that I needed to learn to understand businesses, their fundamentals, and which is a very different skill set than takeover law. And, but I think a more important skill set and more helpful in investing for sure. So that was a big, that was a big change. Maybe we can camp out there a little bit because I think being a contrarian is not thing that comes natural to many investors. Mm-hmm. And so if you can talk about savings and loan, if you're a beginner, it's kind of like kind of like a bank stock in yeah. a way, right? It's a, it's a it was simple like a different bank. Type of, yeah, very simple, very simple bank. bank. Yeah. They just take in deposits and they give people mortgages for homes. It's very simple. And if they do a good job, then they don't lose money on the mortgages. And they can be profitable. So it was a, a good, simple business to start to learn. And so kind of like being in things that are out of favor because it, a lot of people are afraid and they just want out. Doesn't matter what price, just get them out. They want out of that exposure. And so when you have sellers who do not care at what price they sell something, that can be an opportunity for a buyer in that scenario. Right. So I do like looking at things that are out of favor. On the other hand, I also like looking at things that have tremendous balance sheets and fantastic market share, something like an alphabet, you know, where they have one of the biggest cash hoards in the, in the universe and they have a pretty good business. It's been thrown off its game by this AI change, even though they've had AI for a decade and um, they just, didn't do nearly as good a job as some others at, you know, presenting their AI in a big flashy way. That's another kind of business that I really like. Huge, powerful, 
can withstand a lot and not crazy expensive. Oh, you know, whether it's the savings and loans back in the day or if it's alphabet today, we can have conviction about an idea, but the stock could move against us. And there's always going to be reasons why it's not like a stock's cheap and there's no like, oh, we could just buy this cheap stock. There's going to be reasons that people are saying out loud that it's this narrative that is the reason why people are selling. So how do you overcome some of those? And if you have an example, that would be really great. Uh huh. So some of those could be, well, let's stick with the alphabet example. So stock traded down a lot after Microsoft did this very splashy AI chat GPT. It was all in praise. And people were like, Google's lost it. They're going to lose their share and um, they don't have any AI kind of dumb, but it's hard to see your stock, you know, really get pummeled. And you have to sort of be open to the idea. Is there, is there a fundamental reason? Has something changed dramatically that I'm not seeing? So sometimes it's easy to see when something changes dramatically. If you're a drug company and they see the FDI, FDA did not approve your, your application for such drug. That's easy. That's a real event. And that's a real reason why a stock should trade down. But sometimes it's just the market is saying, oh, that's out of favor right now. For example, lower end discretionary consumers aren't going to be spending because inflation's high. I think things like that will pass. And if the market, if the stock market is trading down and my stock is trading down, I'm okay with that. As long as the fundamental reason hasn't really changed. It's a great insight. And that's something that Andrew and I have talked a lot about off air as well as on air and how important it is to really understand the business and how that can really help you withstand some of those market swings. You know, Mr. Market can be a very fickle person. You know, meta, you know, Facebook, meta. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I guess we'll call it Facebook. Yes, um, I know. And I call Alphabet, it's hard to say. I call it Google. Yeah, I keep wanting to call it Google. I, I, when I first read Alpha, oh yeah, Google. But it's interesting, you know, how the market can can sway. And, you know, we're here and I'm here in the Midwest. And so I feel a little more disconnected. I wonder, does it feel sometimes more real when you're in New York and you're in kind of the heart of Wall Street that you see the the swings in the market? Can you, I don't know, for lack of a better word, can you feel the pessimism on the street about yeah, yeah, Meta or Google, for example, or Alphabet? You can. I have owned Meta a long time. That's a great example. You could not have been more out of favor than Meta was a year and a half ago, right? It was Mm -hmm. practically mathematically impossible. Mm -hmm. And it was just interesting. Some of their pain was self-inflicted for sure. This giant pivot of we are going to spend to create the metaverse no matter what it costs Mm -hmm. on top of the Cambridge Analytica thing. I mean, just, you know, bad PR after bad PR and then, then the spending. And so the stock was just getting annihilated. And then if you just step back and look at it and you have, you know, a company that has a billion plus daily active users and it has a huge cash hoard and it has tremendous cash flow and it was trading at maybe six or seven times EBITDA, which is just sort of their not quite, yeah, it's close to free cash flow. So that's a that's a ridiculously low number, ridiculous for a company like Meta. So I had lost a lot of money on it the prior year going into that, but I thought this this is just absurd. You can't find a buyer. I mean, I gotta put more money in this. And and then, you know, Mark Zuckerberg, to his credit, decided, okay, we can't spend like that, and we have to change the narrative. That was a super important pivot that not a lot of CEOs can make easily, but he did. And he said, out with the spending to create the metaverse, in with the year of efficiency. That pivot was so enormous Mm -hmm. that it changed the narrative, even though the business was not that different. uh, The spending plan was different. So it went from being a giant spender to not only a giant spender to a cut cost, so that swing between, you know, the profitability with the metaverse versus the profitability without the metaverse and with the cuts was so giant that, you know, a stock, that stock is up. It's tripled. It's tripled since the bottom. And for a size, a company the size of Meta, that that is such an extraordinary move. 
I don't know. I, I don't know how I got off on that tangent, but it's just a. Sometimes there are giant, giant opportunities right in front of you, and that was a that was a good one. What's the best way to get started in the market? Download Andrew's ebook for free at stockmarketpdf.com. Do you think the information that we have available to us now is contributing to some of these swings, wild swings that we sometimes see? Like, you know, not too long ago, Netflix was out of favor mm-hmm. and, you know, their their subscriber rate dropped or sl- slowed down. I don't follow the mm-hmm. company that closely, but, mm-hmm. you know, a company to see a company that size lose 20% of its market share in in a day. Market is, cap, I, you mean? Or market, market, market cap, yeah. Uh-huh. It's kind of nuts. And yeah. Do you think that maybe some of this technology and the access to more readily information is contributing to some of these wilder swings that we're seeing now that maybe we didn't see 10, 15, 20 years ago? Yeah, I definitely do. And it's in some ways, I think of it as an overload of information. Not every single piece of information can be super important. In fact, very few pieces of information are super important. Yet when you're faced with all of this new information, it sort of drives a need to feel like you need to react to it, but you don't, Mm. but it feels like you should. Right. Right. You know, it feels like if you're not actively trading around, then you're missing something. And I, I don't, I mean, that is a way to make money. I think, I don't know. I can't do it. I, I don't do it. Uh, And then also I think, wow, that's super tax inefficient, but people can't do it that way. It just doesn't make sense to me. We got to, there's only a few pieces of information that are really important. And so a lot of the rest is noise, particularly if the market in general is going up or down. Because if you're going to say, well, I'm going to wait till the market stops going down. How will you know? How will you know when the market has up going down and is in fact going to start going up? I don't know. Nobody knows. So you have to make the right call to get out. And then you have to make the right call to get in. I can't do either of those. And I certainly can't do both. So I don't really trade around on short-term, I don't know, expectations of the market overall. So you're saying that your crystal ball doesn't work any better than ours does? That is correct. I have put my crystal ball away. I think it was cracked and broken, shattered after (laughs) I don't know how many dropped crystal balls. And yeah, I don't worry about it. I think that's better to sort of have your eye on the long game. And can you give us an example of one of those key pieces of information that you think is more signal than noise that would be profitable for a beginner to go down and start to explore? Uh One signal, I think. I always like management teams that under-promise on what their earnings are going to be and over-deliver. I really don't want a management team that's really, you know, hyping their stock. So that's something that is important to me. So one thing that I think investors should really do is listen to a conference call, an earnings conference call, and listen to what the management team is telling you. So let me give you an example of a bad investment that I have right now. Um, and why I still own it. So Foot Locker is the name. And they have a new manager, a new CEO, Mary Dillon, who was the CEO of Ulta. And she was tremendously, tremendously successful at Ulta. And there's a lot of similarities. Ulta doesn't really have its own brand so much as it is a supermarket of makeup brands. And so she built that and built this loyalty program, this digital program that they know what their customers want. They know what they're looking at. They they know everything. And she wants to do the same for Foot Locker, which is not totally dissimilar. So she's it's a surprise hiring and the street was very excited given her extraordinary success. So I was happy about that. I owned it before they hired her. I didn't, I was thrilled with the hire. And she proceeded to lay out a very aggressive turnaround strategy, part of which is dealing with Nike has said, we're not going to have so much exposure to Foot Locker. That was weighing on the stock. 
And so she put out this big investor day presentation in March. And then in May, missed earnings very badly. Stock got crushed. It's currently still crushed. And I thought, all right, I'm going to give her a little more time. It's hard to change a business. I'm going to give her a little more time, one or two quarters more at most. And if she's not making progress, if she's not improving, she doesn't need to get to her goals because these are multi-year goals. But if she's not improving from where things were, then I have to sort of, I have to sort of give up. And there's this Buffett saying, when a great manager takes over a mediocre business, it's the reputation of the business that remains intact. And that may be end up being the lesson. So I may be adding sort of, oh, here's another thing, don't do. But um, I want to give her a chance. And I think the stock is so cheap and so hated that the risk reward is interesting because the balance sheet's in really good shape. And so, should I mean, it, it trades at a, I like to look at price to earnings multiple, price to cash flow, those kind of things. It's a mid single digit multiple, which is very, very low. So I feel like here's the turnaround strategy. People hate it. They're a little bit uh, down on her. And I feel like the risk reward, if it works, the upside's huge. And the downside, if it doesn't, I don't know that it's very big. So I wish I came to it today. <laughs> not <laughs> where I was, where it was, uh, which was like 42 before they announced terrible earnings. But um, I also think, do you know the, do you know the term sandbagging? Sandbagging oh, yeah. is when you sort of put out low, low goals for the street because you want to be certain you can meet them. And people mm-hmm. are more interested in, can you meet the goal than what the goal itself is? So a lot of CEOs will sandbag meaning set the bar low. And I think she did that in this last quarter, set the bar really low so she could jump over. That's my hope there. Yeah. I thought I'd pick one that didn't work. (laughs) It's easier when they work, but um, I don't know. So I, I, I like that one. And then there's a term called kitchen sinking. I don't know if you know what kitchen sinking is. Mm Yeah, you do. Okay, well, just it's a new. It's when a new CEO comes in, they just say, uh, "Everything's terrible. We're gonna spend money to do this. We're gonna make less money. This is bad. That's bad. But we got a great core of stuff to work with. They don't want to be too down and out, but they want to set the bar low so they can be yeah, throw yeah. the kitchen sink at them. Right. right. So she might be kitchen sinking it this past quarter. Yeah. <laughs> Budgeting was always a challenge for me. I struggled to find the best way to keep track of all of my money. Not to mention all the time tracking down receipts, cataloging expenses, and trying to figure out what went wrong with my air quote system until Monarch Money. Monarch Money allowed me to easily see what is going on with my finances, helping me get a better handle on my spending, budgets, and more. It's my go-to app every day, more so than my bank, because I can quickly see where I am with my budgets and spending, allowing me to invest more and spend time on the things that I want to do. It's my GPS for money. Monarch is a top-rated all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all of your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. Create custom budgets, set goals, and collaborate with your partner. And now get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com beginners. Unlike other personal finance apps, Monarch's simple, intuitive design makes it so easy to set up, customize, and use. Monarch has built-in features to collaborate with your partner, family, or financial advisor. Invite them to your account at no extra cost, and they'll get their own login info and a joint view of all of your finances. Monarch is the most customizable budgeting app. Change the layout of your dashboard, toggle between light and dark mode, create custom budgets and notifications, set up automatic rules for transactions and notifications, and more. In fact, Monarch Money is one of the first to bring you direct Apple Card, Apple Cash, and savings syncing with the latest iOS 17.4 update. Now you can sync your wallet directly for seamless budgeting. After trying out Monarch for myself, I understand why it's a top-rated personal finance app. And right now, get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash beginners. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y dot com slash beginners for your extended 30-day free trial. Hey, do you have trouble sleeping? Then maybe you should check out The Sleepy Podcast. It's a show where I read old books in the public domain to help you get to sleep. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. 
Classic stories like A Tale of Two Cities, Pride and Prejudice, Winnie the Pooh. Stories that are great for adults and kids alike. For years now, Sleepy has helped millions of people catch some much-needed Zs, start their next day off fresh, and discover old books that they didn't know they loved. So, whether you have a tough time snoozing or you just like a good bedtime story, fluff up the cool side of your pillow and tune into Sleepy. Unless you're driving, then please don't listen to Sleepy. Find Sleepy on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes each week. Sweet dreams. Sounds like there could be a little bit of a mess to deal with. So why the difference when you mentioned, you know, at the very beginning we talked about you were wrong about an idea and it blew up and the risk reward was awful versus if you're a long footlocker here, the risk rewards completely flipped as far as upside versus downside with your trade from when you were doing risk arb. So can you explain in investing, you can be wrong on an idea, Uh but depending on the situation, you can either have a ton of downside and a little bit of upside or a lot of upside and a little bit of downside. And how can the average Mm -hmm. investor put themselves in more situations where they have higher upside and not as much downside? Uh That, That is a good question. So first, the downside. To me, the very first place to look at to assess downside is the balance sheet. So how much debt do they have? And particularly now in this world we're in right now with rising rates, when does that debt come due? And what is it going to be for refinance for? So if you have companies, a lot of companies did a fantastic job issuing debt in the height of the market euphoria plus zero interest rates. Let me just give an example of one. Carvana, which is currently trading it in the low 20s, issued a convertible bond at 0% interest, struck at $350 a share. Maybe it was zero and change percent. That is such a ridiculously fantastic debt issuance for Carvana. It's, it's fantastic. However, at some point, that debt will come due and they will need more money. So they can't, they can't issue debt at zero anymore, <laughs> Right. Now, let's turn to Foot Locker. Foot Locker has a great balance sheet. Their biggest debt is really leases that they have coming due on space. And those roll every year, some amount of them roll, and very often they just renew. And it, it looks, it, it's not, it's an ongoing cost of the business. So the balance sheet, what can go wrong? Can they afford to get new inventory? Absolutely. The balance sheet at Foot Locker is outstanding. And it's okay to have some debt, and they do, but it's not very much, and it's really not very much relative to how much cash they have generated in the past couple of years. So when you have a balance sheet that is good, that's an element of safety that gives you sort of a bit of a margin, a margin of safety, to use a term, a Seth Klarman term, who is is a very famous investor. So that's important. And then what price does it trade at? What price to earnings? And if one thing I like to look at is we'll talk about a stock price to earnings ratio relative to itself. What has its own price to earnings ratio been over its history? And where is it now? So let's say Foot Locker, maybe it's 11, 12, I don't know. But the current price to earnings is six. And the balance sheet's in good shape. So I feel like that risk reward is really interesting as opposed to United Airlines, which that deal was going to be done entirely in debt. If the debt markets changed, the deal would blow up. That is what happened. I didn't appreciate that. Um, so I'm trying to look for the opposite. <laughs> the opposite. I like had I put that trade on the other side, not the way I did, but had sold that to me, that would have been one of my greatest trades ever. Instead, it was a very expensive lesson, but that's it. That's okay. Well, hopefully now we have many investors who are going to take that lesson and apply it in their own life and not have to pay that expensive tuition. So we salute you for, for yeah. doing that for us. I, I, hope, I hope your listeners are not as dumb as I was <laughs> or may continue to be. I don't know. But 
I have learned a few things, so I hope I don't make the same terrible mistake. Twice. The irony of you saying that, knowing how complex merger law is, is <laughs> yeah, that's a funny joke. <laughs> yeah, it is. <laughs> Who here has had every trade be perfect? You know, raise their hands. Nobody raises their hands, right? So. <laughs> or they raise their hand, and I'm like, that person's lying. Right, yeah. they're not telling the truth. <laughs> right. Yeah. It's the I know I remember the the bad ones far more clearly. Mm. They hurt far more than mm. the good ones. Sometimes you just get lucky. Sometimes that happens and something yeah. works out. But and then I, I do also find one of the things I really struggle with is when to sell, which I think is a really hard thing to know when to do. Mm. You know, and I've definitely made a mistake of selling too soon, selling too late. Try to make some guidelines to kind of take the emotion out because I always come back to this. The emotions are not your friend. Mm-hmm. And um, so w- one of the things I do is think about, all right, why am I in this? Are these things still true? And if they're not still true, that's a reason to sell. If the stock's down because the market's down, that's not a reason to sell. Mm-hmm. The thing I wrestle with the most is let's say you have something that's working and it's going up and you're like, no, I would never want to sell that one because this one's, you know, it's really working. One thing I do is decide, okay, how much exposure, what percentage of my portfolio can I have in any one name, right? And if it grows enough that it becomes too big, then I have to get bounced down to that, whatever that top number is. So if it's 15% of your portfolio, whatever it might be. It goes from 10% to 18%. I got to sell a little bit because 18% in one name is just too big. Are you comfortable sharing what that number is for you? Does it change? Is it? It changes. Well, so, so it's 20% for me. It does change a little bit on the balance sheet for sure. So if I own a company like Alphabet, where the balance sheet is stupendous, I know they can survive a pandemic or a then I'm a little more comfortable if it's a retailer without like a footlocker ever went to, you know, whatever the number would be to get it to, I would be far more serious about cutting that if it got that big. So 20% for me, but then I have one other just element of complication. Do you have another thing in your portfolio that has similar risk? So for example, let's say you own Chevron and Chevron became you know really worked and it's 24% of your portfolio and you also own Halliburton which is in the oil field services industry well in fact you've got a bigger bet in you know you've taken a bet on oil if oil goes down both Exxon or Chevron I'm sorry and Halliburton will go down so you kind of have to be aware of that as well Do you have secret underlying interlocking exposure? Yeah, I think that's great context. Yeah, totally agree. So can you talk about your podcast a little bit? Thank you for asking, Andrew. (laughs) (laughs) So my podcast is called How She Does It. And it's interviewing women who have had tremendous success in varying fields from media to finance to athletic endeavors, starting new companies. And and it's about their path, which almost always was a very circuitous path, never straightforward. And and then also, I really want to focus on the failures and how you come back from that. It's not just the failure, it's what happened, but it's how you come back from that. And because I think you learn so much from that. And it's always fascinating to me how people overcome failure, many sometimes multiple failures, and yet continue to keep going. And then I also like to learn a little bit about different worlds that I don't know anything about. So whether it's media, which I do know a little bit about, but, you know, venture capital, I don't know a ton about that. So uh, just different women that I either know already or just reached out to. And for whatever reason, they say, yes, we'll do it. Um, And so it's how she does it. And then also, how do they make their private life work in that sometimes sort of very intense, very time-consuming, very all-encompassing job that they may have? And something I've wrestled with, I have two sets of twins, 
And each two? set is uh, two sets. Each set two. is a boy and a girl. Yeah. Wow. And so, you know, we had my husband and I tried to raise them, expose them equally to all different kinds of activities and different experiences. And still, they're very different. The boys are very different from the girls. And so that's interesting to me in that some of the, some of the differences are just innate. Some may be learned, I don't know, and you can't categorize so broadly all the time, but I've found this mini experiment of two sets, boy-girl twins, raising the same, girls are different, and boys are different. And so I like to kind of explore also how people, how these women, how do they manage their families, and what do they want to try to teach their children? What are they trying to, what are they trying to show them? What do they want from them? And one of them asked me, what do you what's the most important lesson you've taught your daughters and for me that was don't live the life you think i want you to live live the life you want to live so i had a you know a, a tiger mom before there were tiger moms she was the original tiger mom <laughs> and now i appreciate that but at the time i didn't and it worked for me but maybe it won't work for my my daughters for them to have a tiger mom they do have a tiger dad, though. That can't really help. I don't, I don't know what you mean. I'm thinking of Tiger King, but I can't uh, picture what the tiger mom would be. A tiger mom is a is a mom who is like, you've got to work really hard. You know, always got to get an A. Why did you get an A? You know, push, push, push. And that was my mother. And, and I thought, oh, okay, I don't know if I want to do that with my kids. But I am married to a tiger mom also <laughs> so <laughs> he does it and i could be like the more laid back one <laughs> so we'll see you know I'm sure it'll come out in therapy with the kids i know but <laughs> they are good i highly I recommend two sets of twins <laughs> you highly recommend, <laughs> highly it? recommend it. it's a busy life but it's i really enjoy it. i have one daughter and i can barely manage that i can't <laughs> imagine having two sets of twins like oh my I know. <laughs> it's busy yeah so i guess that begs the question how fast can you and your husband change diapers because you probably you know, <laughs> well we are well, speed records <laughs> well 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 past the diapers but i can't even imagine how many diapers oh. uh, what sort of contribution we made to the landfill situation with them <laughs> <laughs> but that's an exhausting time exhausting yeah. Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah. So, I guess can we talk a little bit more about your show? I mean, we, you and I were talking off air about one of the guests that you're having on, and maybe you could talk a little bit about her story. That was, I thought, that was fascinating. Yeah. So, one of the guests who I will uh, have on, who I, uh, Diana Nyan, who is just a fascinating woman. Who she, if you don't know who she is, she is a woman who swam from Cuba to Florida, not as not fleeing but as an athletic endeavor <laughs> and she did it on her fourth try at 62, which is, it's so unimaginable, you know, it just, there's a great documentary about her and, you know, the, the prior attempts and getting stung by all kinds of jellyfish and having oh. abandoned different, you know, different attempts for different reasons, the currents or whatnot. And, uh, and just that moment of getting literally walking onto the beach at, in Florida is just so extraordinary. And how do you do that? And how do you, how do you decide, yes, I'm going to try for a fourth time, despite right. my age, because right. this, this time is really going to work. And how do you inspire a team to give up their jobs, their family, to come along with you in this venture? And it's a, you know, it is a to-do to track her, to, you know, give her whatever gluten or whatever, you know, whatever, you know, kind of jelly kind of thing that marathon runners eat. And it's quite an endeavor. And just that kind of that kind of belief in yourself, I find so extraordinary and mm -hmm. rare. She's fascinating and full of energy, which I guess isn't surprising. Yeah. <laughs> I wish you I was <laughs> Can you imagine no, that? No, 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 no I really can't. Two and no. a half days. You're no, swimming. No, no, I really can't. Yeah. Like, you know, like I said earlier, I swam competitively when I was younger and 
you know, just getting in the pool and practicing for an hour or two a day was, that was enough. That was done <laughs> when we were done with practice. So I can't imagine having to do that 50 more hours. I, you know, it's, yeah. So and like you said, the, the currents, you know, just kind of thinking about that, you know, you get in the pool, you swim, there's no current. You just go right. up and down, up, down, right? You get in the ocean, you start here, you don't end up straight across. Uh-huh. Yes. <laughs> yeah, something's going to move you one way or the other. So you have to, oh, uh, yeah. Right. So that, it's not I think like it's the cause of one of the failed attempts. The yeah. current was mm-hmm. just too strong and mm-hmm. too much energy to overcome the current and the distance. Yeah. Yeah, you're you're not really swimming in a straight line. You're kind of swim, swimming in an elliptical to try to yeah right. You know that is ridiculously amazing. Yeah, so just trying to find w- interesting women who have interesting stories and and this persistence. You know, how do you not give up? We've all felt like giving up. I think it's something. Yeah, I think it's refreshing too that for most of this episode we honed down on your own mistakes. So you've kind of shown by example what the podcast is going to be like practicing what you're preaching. So I think it's inspiring. I wish that episode was live, live right now. So I can listen to what we're talking. Yeah, exactly. So I'll be looking forward to that. Um, yeah, me too. I, I really appreciated the time you shared with us, Karen, and some of the lessons that you gave and, and the experiences and failures you had. And I hope investors take it seriously and use it to become better investors. Well, thank you so much for having me, Dave and Andrew. And uh, if we had more time, I would have a lot more failures that I probably shouldn't, you know, dwell on as much as I do. But I really appreciate your having me on your podcast. Thank you. You're welcome. It was our pleasure. We really enjoyed it. We really enjoyed it. So what was the name of the podcast again? So How She Does It. How She Does It. All right. And when is it going to be released? It it is going to be released. First episode drops June 26th. Okay. All right. I know what I'm doing on June 26th. So awesome. Awesome. Again, Karen, thank you very much for your time. We really appreciate it. And everyone, go out and check out our show. It's going to be fantastic. All right. right. Thanks, guys. You're welcome. Thank you. Bye, Dave. Bye, Andrew. Bye. Bye. We hope you enjoyed this content. Seven Steps to Understanding the Stock Market shows you precisely how to break down the numbers in an engaging and readable way with real-life examples. Get access today at stockmarketpdf.com. Until next time, have a prosperous day. The information contained is for general information and educational purposes only. It is not intended for a substitute for legal, commercial, and or financial advice from a licensed professional. Review our full disclaimer at einvestingforbeginners.com. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.